excited to be back this week. Hey, if you just graduated in the last uh, couple of days, could you raise your hand for us? And we'd like to just like applaud and say, congratulations. That's awesome. Uh, if you're a parent of one of these folks, again, congratulations on the pay raise that you just got. Um, Someone's like, exactly, finally. Um, so we're in this series called For Your Good, and honestly, it's based off of a verse that I think we um, intellectually would probably agree with, just simply because of the fact that it's like, okay, in the Bible, I, I feel like I ought to agree with it, but when it comes down to the um, minutia of our life, I think sometimes we would push back against it, and it's when Jesus said, Jesus said, he was talking to his disciples in the book of John, or John records it in the book of John, but he was talking to his disciples, and he was about to die, he knew that, he knew the cross was imminent, and so gathering you know, his people together, he gave a few last teachings in John goes into extraordinary detail to record it. And he says, Jesus says is in, um, it is for your good that I go. It's better for you that I go away because the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor will be with you and it will come to you and in fact reside and dwell inside of you. And while we, I think, understand that, uh, to be honest, for many of us, it would be really nice to have Jesus next to us a lot of the time. Um, sometimes it wouldn't because it'd be super convicting, right? But, but there's a lot of the time where it's like, man, what should I do in life, right? Maybe when you're coming out of high school, it's, it's which college should I go to? When you're in college, it's what should I major in? What nobody tells you is it doesn't matter because you're not going to use it anyways, um, right? But then you're going to go in, in which career do I go into? Which city do I move to? Who do I marry? Is it time to have kids? Is it time to buy a house? Um, which house should we buy? How much house can we afford? Which neighborhood should we live in? What school should our kids attend? What school should our kids go to college? And then, you know, kids go to college and they move out and then you think well so now what do I do right and and you kind of go through life and it's a time to retire and where do we retire and what what does that look like and now I'm kind of bored so I'm going to unretire and what should I do with the rest of my years but we all come to thoughts ideas places in life and and it would just be real nice to be able to sit next to Jesus and say Jesus what do you think what do you think about this? What do you think about this plan? What do you think about this decision? What do you think about this idea? But Jesus' words couldn't be more clear. It's better for you. It's better for you that I go. So the Holy Spirit, which the idea mechanically behind that makes sense, it's that it's better if Jesus is in us than next to us. Simply put, it's just better if Jesus is in us than next to us. But the problem is, is that sometimes Jesus next to us seems like it would be a little bit easier to tell what he has to say about the trajectory of our life. And the difficult part, for being honest, is we are a, a church that we bring all types of people together. Some of you are from backgrounds where um, the Spirit was a big part of, of the experience or the expression of your faith. Some of you come from a background where the, the Spirit is something that you, it, it's an intellectual assent of which you agree, but it's not much of an experience. And some of us, we have no religious background at all. And so you're thinking, what in the world did I get myself into today? My hope is that for all of us, we would not necessarily agree on the exact um, things of the Spirit specifically today, but more so what's our responsibility in it. Because here's what I know. For those of us who the Spirit was this huge experience, there was a lot of times a huge experience in worship, right? And people are, are waving flags in the back and people are um, you know, hanging from chandeliers up top. And if you're from like super country church, again, I would love to see a church that does this, not because I actually like think it's good, just because I want to see it where people handle snakes. I'm telling you, stuff gets wild in the country. <clears throat> and then there's the other side where it's like, man, it is, it, it, it's just completely intellectual. Here's, here's what I think for both sides of us. A lot of us, I think most of us think that the Spirit should be more strong and powerful in our lives. 
that if I, we've used this example last week, if I came to you and said this, you know, I had an encounter with the living God and he gave inside of me the spirit of basketball, right? And I went and there was no improvement in my dribbling. I was throwing up bricks off the back of the rim constantly, right? I was slow, which I'm not, but I am. <laughs> you know, I couldn't jump, you know, which is again accurate, you know. So like like if all this stuff happened, you would look at me and you'd be like, you you have the spirit of a 38-year-old white man in you, right? Not not the spirit of like LeBron James of basketball or or you know Kobe Mamba, you know, or, or MJ, like you like you would not you would you would expect a marked improvement in my ability. Or at least the way I would conceptualize my ability. What's interesting is I think that's the same thing we wrestle with when it comes to the Holy Spirit. As we know it should be more power, there should be some significant difference. It should, it should guide, it should change, it should shape, it should improve, it should convict, it should compel. It, should, it, it feels like it should do more than what it does. Last than well, two weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about how how the Spirit of God moves with the mission of God. And as we move into mission, we experience more of the Spirit. But today, I want to look at the very first time that the people of God experience the Spirit of God. And Peter stands up and gives a sermon. And I think at the end of his sermon, he drills exactly what we need to do to look, to say, how do I have more experience? How do I have more of a sense of presence, of the presence of God in my life? If you're familiar with the Bible, the book of Acts, it's a story uh, or the, the telling of the early church. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, wrote to his friend Theophilus in the book of Luke, and he says, most excellent Theophilus, basically I've written, I've, I've witnessed, I have interviewed a ton of people, and so this is an orderly account of the life of Jesus. He then writes to Theophilus in Acts chapter 1 and says, and basically here's the story of the early church. Let's use those words, but that's how the book of Acts is going to lay out. Chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven, says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And wait for the Spirit to come down. I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the Spirit. Now, it's interesting because if you've read the Bible, you know that. But I want to challenge you to say, have you ever actually put yourself in the disciples' shoes as they're experiencing that? If it was me, and Jesus says, okay, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to wait for the Spirit. I'd be like, Jesus, I don't know if you remember this or not. But 40, 40 days ago, they killed you in Jerusalem. I hear Philippi is nice this time of year, you know? Like, can we go anywhere else besides Jerusalem? And then he doesn't give them, like, he didn't say, okay, and so in exactly four days, the Spirit's going to come down, and this is what it's going to look like. He says, I want you, want you to go and wait. For how long? I'm not going to tell you. What's it going to look like? I'm not going to tell you. You'll know. It's like, sweet. So I feel like about day six, they were like, whew, like, dude, it got cold in here. Is that the Spirit? You know? All of a sudden, it's like, they're like, oh, I saw the paper move. I think it was the spirit, maybe for them, papyrus move, you know? And I think it was the spirit. They, they just, they sat there and they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited. And all of a sudden in chapter two, um, the undeniable move of the spirit happened. So chapter two, verse one, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, which was a festival that everybody from, from miles and from cities around would have come to Jerusalem to be there as a part of. They were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, for some reason, I just love to try to picture myself in this setting. 
Because it doesn't say there was a mighty wind. This isn't like tornado that just hit. It was like, but the sound of it. How disorienting must that have been, right? It's like, there's, we live in Florida, so we're very well acquainted with mighty rushing winds, right? Like we, we know, tor- not tornadoes, but we know hurricanes, like it's our job, right? And so all of a sudden they hear this like, they're like, but it's not blowing wind. This is insanity. In verse three, in divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And so they're sitting there looking, and all of a sudden, like, dude, you got a tongue. You got, I got a tongue. Like, this, this is wild, right? And so these tongues of fire, and I'm trying to imagine, like, the overwhelmed feeling that they must have felt at this time. But all of a sudden, from the presence of the Holy Spirit coming down, they were filled, verse 4, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now, they were dwelling in Jerusalem among the Jews. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So they heard this this wind, perhaps, and then they heard these people that were just talking in, in wild dialects. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, I think this was like a question of awe, but it could have been a degrading question at the same time. And here's what I mean by that. This is like them saying, you know, they hear this sound. They all come rushing and they see a bunch of people that are speaking in different you know, languages. And they're like, dude, I know them. They're from Galilee and Galileans are not trilingual. OK, like <clears throat> it's like they're they're coming together and they're saying, Look at these people. They're speaking in different languages, and they're from Weewa Hitchka. You know that can't be so. You know, <laughs> you're from Weewa. I just want to. I just want you to know. I'm just trying to spread the love between Perry and Wakala. So Weewa is going to be a new object of wrath this summer. Okay, we might call this the summer of Weewa. Just kidding. Well, kind of just kidding. We'll see. Lord willing, <laughs> that's sacrilegious. Anyways, back on track with the sermon. Um, so they see this happen. They see these different languages. And, and, and here's what's interesting to them is they're sitting, sitting there looking at it saying, this cannot be described as anything besides the Holy Spirit. Like, like this, is, this is wild. They came together because they each heard them speaking in his own language and they were amazed and astonished, saying, all these people who speak Galileans. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And he goes to us, and here's all the languages that we were hearing this in. Here's just, here's just the ones that we were able to compile together. These are all the languages that we heard as we were, as we were just sitting there in astonished awe of what was happening. We're going to skip down to verse um, 12. And all were amazed and perplexed. I love that idea. He's saying, and here was the effect. When people saw the Spirit of God working through the people of God, they were amazed at it, and they were so confused. Man, I wish that described me. Like that people saw it, and they were like, man, I'm like amazed at what God is doing and perplexed and saying, through him? Like, I, I want that, right? That, that, that's kind of what we want to be the case, is that people would see us, and there would be such mark, a marked difference. Ephesians talks about the the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's almost like they would see, man, the way that they love, the way that they have joy, the way that they have peace, the way that they have patience, the way they have kindness, their goodness, their faithfulness, their gentleness, their level of self-control is both amazing 
and confusing because it just seems indescribable. What does this mean? Verse 13, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, partially because I just feel sarcastic. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. In other words, somebody's yelling out, they're hammered. With new wine, which, by the way, is not good wine. New wine is bad wine. So they're like, and it's natty light. This stuff's gross, right? They're saying, what is, what is this? You know, and, so, and so in this kind of like you know, confusion and mess and all these different ideas, Peter then stands up and speaks and begins his sermon. And here's what Peter really has to do in his sermon. He has to do two things. One, convince them that this is the Spirit. Two, convince them that Jesus is Lord. So one, Spirit. Two, Jesus is Lord. And this kind of sets the idea for what we're going to learn about today. He says, but this is what was uttered. Or sorry, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk. I got you, Bill, in the back who's yelling their hammer. I get it. He says, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. And it's only the third hour of the day. Which some of us are like, dude, spring break, it doesn't matter, okay? So he's saying, no, 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 no. this is Pentecost, this is the people of God, it's 9 a.m., this is actually the Spirit of God that's indwelt in these people. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. I'm just going to read a couple of, of, of lines of this. In the last days, it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. On your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream, dream dreams. Even on my male and female male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In other words, Peter stopped back and said, "Hey, hey, hey!" To a primarily Jewish audience that's gathered together for the religious festival of Pentecost, there he's saying, "You got to get this. You guys remember what Joel said?" To which we are like, "Who is that?" But they knew exactly who that was. He says, remember when Joel said that I'm going to pour out my spirit, that thing that had been prophesied long, long ago, that thing is happening right now, and we are experiencing it, and we are witnesses to it. And it's powerful. Verse 21, he ends and he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he transitioned and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words, wonders, and signs that God did through him and in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, he's about to make a connection and say, okay, this is the Spirit of God. Now, let me tell you how the Spirit of God is going to bear witness to the Son of God. That that Jesus, you heard his teaching. He said, we all heard his teaching. They were all there. They said, yeah, we heard his teachings. And you would have seen what he did. You would have seen the miracles. You would have seen the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the person who was blind that could then see, the person who you know, couldn't walk but then could walk, the people who were sick and made well, the people like Lazarus who were dead and you know, basically brought back to life. He said, you would have seen all that stuff, and they would have seen all of that stuff. He said, now I just want you to know this, that the thing that confused us was when he died, but that was actually according to the plan and the will of God which is important, not just for us to know that God is in control, but because the plan and the will of God 
was that Jesus would do these things, do these miracles to the early kind of century followers in such a way that it would substantiate that he is in fact of God, but that God ultimately had to die. And the reason why, which is vital to our faith, the reason why is because God in his holiness his pureness, his glory, we cannot stand in his presence because of our sinfulness. In other words, I can try to make myself a better person, and so can you. We can all try to be more moral. We can all try to, you know, do more, be more, be nicer, be more kind, have more love, have more joy. If we're really spiritual and sanctified, step on a Lego late at night and not cuss, right? Like we can do as much as we possibly can. But at the end of the day, we are still sinful. And that's the shared human experience. There's not a person in here, myself especially included, who doesn't fall into this shared category of sinfulness. So we can't moral our way into God's good graces. We can't good our way into God's good graces. But what we can do is come to the reasonable awareness that God did that for us. That because we had done an infraction on the law, we had done something wrong, and God knew, and there has to be restitution paid because God is a just judge, just as much as he is loved. That the judge who would normally stand condemned, sacrificed for us in his son, Jesus, so that we could have a relationship with him. So he's explaining and saying, this was, this was the will and the knowledge, the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He says, let's take David, right, to the Jewish audience again. They love David. David was the man. David was the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I say that, and, and for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He says, verse 26, but here's the problem with that 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. In other words, to the Jewish audience. So you've heard this is what David said. They would have said, yeah, we 100% remember David. He said, here's the problem. That doesn't make sense because David died. In that prophecy, it's a little bit confusing because David said, you're not going to let me see that. You're not going to let me see that. You're not going to let me see that. And, you know, you, you don't believe me. There's this, you, everybody just turn around. You can see his tomb right now. He says, but that was actually about something different. That was about Jesus being there for a prophet, knowing that God had sworn him on oath, that he would set on his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades for his death, for, or nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Love that. He says, okay, and so let me just make this a little more pointed. We all saw him. We didn't, but they did. He's saying, and we saw him come back from the dead. Our hope is not in hope. Our faith is not in faith. It's not a wish of something that we hope to be true. He says, we are placing our trust in that which we saw. So God exalted him at the right hand. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so here's his conclusion of this whole sermon. And here's the, here's the point that all of this consistently builds up to. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That God has made him both Lord and Christ. And here's the really important part behind both of those things. Christ meant Messiah, Savior. He's saying, okay, so God, God has installed him, and he is the Savior. He is the one who saves us from ourselves, from our sinfulness, that he died so that we could be reconciled with God. But more than that, in addition to that, and in fact, as a part of that, he's also made him Lord. Now, Lord is not simply an ascribed title to a deity. What this word Lord actually means, it has a couple different derivatives of how it goes back to uh, a couple of different languages that, that they would use in this, but it's kind of root form. What Lord meant was master and owner. Master and owner. That God, you own and you are in charge and you are master and we will always defer to you. He says, so God has made him both savior and master, Savior and owner, Savior and Lord, Savior and King of my life. Now, here's how this all ties together. Most of us want Jesus as Savior, but we do not want Him in every area of our life as Lord. We want the salvific work of God that redeems us and restores us However, when it comes to his lordship, when it comes to his kingship, when it comes to everything, God, we will do whatever, whenever your life is a blank check. Many of us, the truth is, this is myself included, like there are areas that I want that to be true, but it's just like, man, I just want to regain and retain control. And so let me ask you this. Do you, have you actually relinquished total control of your life to God? Because there's a lot of areas where it's easy. And you know how it is, like the areas that you really don't care about that much. But there's a couple of areas that's really difficult. Maybe it's the area of relationships. That it's so difficult to really relinquish control. There's the area of my future career that's really difficult to, to, to relinquish control. I think for all of us in general, one of the fears is that if I relinquish control to God in every and any area of my life, it will be wildly uncomfortable. Let me say two things about that. One, I totally understand. Because I feel the same way. In fact, for me, like many of you, you've been through times where, where you relinquish control. Say, God, whatever, whenever, wherever I'm in, my life is a blank check for you. And then over time, we just kind of reel that control back in. Until it's us in control again. We're the ones that are pushing. We're the ones that are moving. We're the ones that are controlling. And the difficult part in that, again, the really tough part, is when we acknowledge that we ought to have more of the presence of, of the Spirit in our life, I think what happens is that we're saying, God, 
I want to be in control of my life, but I would like the addition of the benefit of what the Spirit has for me. As opposed to God, I want to be fully controlled by the Spirit in my life. I just want you, God, whenever, wherever, however, whomever. So God, you have control of my relationships. God, you have control of my career. God, you have control of my finances. God, you have control of my family. God, you have control of where I go, where I live, what I move, where I move, how I move. God, you have control of everything. And if you're young, let me tell you, you are in such a good spot to begin this as a rhythm of your life, that to do this consistently on a regular basis. Because as you get older, relinquishing control, and, and adults, you know this, the, the, the older you get, the more responsibility you have, the relinquishing of control. If God says to do something different, it affects more people than just you. Isn't that the difficult thing? If God calls me to do something different, go somewhere different, it's not just me. It's me, my wife, and my two kids who I love dearly, and I would give everything up for. I can be on the streets for God, and I have before. But when it comes to my kiddos, it's tough. And so he looks at him and he says, so I want you to relinquish control that he has made him both king, lord, savior. He has made him in control of everything and we relinquish everything to him. So let me ask this again. What's the thing? What's the area that you just have a difficult time giving up control. Like you just don't want to hand over that area of forgiveness and the control. Perhaps you've built an identity around bitterness and you don't know what it is to look like without it. What does it look like? What is that area? Because the truth is we all have it. I, I, this is like a really silly illustration. Mm that I don't have with me. thought I did. Well, it's honestly probably better because I had like this little like plastic glove. And the thought was going to be that, that man, like whatever fills that controls it. And if our life fills it, then we control our lives. And so we want to be filled by the spirit, but yet remaining the ones that fill the control seat of our lives. Thanks. I know I should have had to get the illustration. <laughs> honestly, thought it was in my pocket. It's the Lord. Um, but isn't that true? Now, now, at this point, at this point, what I love, what I love is there's, and rightly so, a spirit of, of, of conviction, of kind of like, you know, cut to the core of who we are. The good news is, the good news is, is that we feel in this moment so much less conviction than to Peter's initial audience. Because here's here Peter's next words. This is what Peter says. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Like we know in a derivative way, right, that our sins were responsible for him being hung on the cross. But they're like, yeah, no, we were the ones in the crowd that yelled crucify him. And so Peter looks at him and says, God has poured out his spirit and it's available to all people. This Jesus who is, who is king, he is Lord, he is savior. And by the way, we crucified him. And so they, rightly so, were cut to the core. 
And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is how you know it was Peter's first sermon because he gave zero application. He's like, yeah, I mean, here's the spirit. Here's Jesus. Joel said it. David said it. You killed him. Happy Sunday. You know, (laughs) they're like, what? What do we do with that? That's ridiculous. (laughs) So they said, gosh, we feel terrible. So, So what do we do with that? What do we do with this information? And Peter responds. Peter responds with an idea, with a thought that I think is just, is so, it's so brilliant. So this is what Peter says to him. He says, And Peter said to them, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, now that you've acknowledged, now that you have acknowledged, I want you to repent. I want you to turn from that thing. I want you to be baptized. And I want you to, in every way, shape, and form, relinquish control of your life. I want you to repent. And I want you to be baptized. The idea of repentance is turning from, and the idea of baptism is being made new. In this verse, there's so much controversy around the, the this is, you know, uh, for you as you've made an adult decision. There's also references towards Abrahamic language. To me, it's like baptism, adults, kids. I'm like, dude, does Jesus have your life or not? It's really what I care about. But here's what I think we miss in this. At a time like this, when we feel a sense of guilt or hopefully not guilt, but con- conviction that, man, like, like there are areas of my life as a believer that I really want to see God work and I really want to see God move. And I'm terrified that if I say yes to God, my life is a blank check. That he's going to call me to move to Africa. He's going to call me to move to Ethiopia. He's going to call me to move to Peru. Although most people who move to those places would be like, dude, it's awesome. I never want to come back. Which parents were like, don't move there because I want you to come home for Christmas, right? But like, like if I relinquish control of my life, then what will that look like? And so we confess that we're in error, but we don't actually repent. One of my good friends, a pastor named Tim Rice, who's much older and wiser than I am. Remember I was talking to him about something that was going on, and he said, Ben, the thing that we have to focus on is helping people move from confession to repentance. Because we feel the benefit we feel the weight lifted off us of confessing without ever actually changing. And so if we were to rel- not, just, not just conceptually relinquish for control, but actually move in the opposite direction, what would that look like? What would that look like? What would that look like to say, man, I just, I'm not just acknowledging and confessing the fact that I have an addiction, addiction to pornography, and so I just need to confess that I actually need to move towards intentional accountability consistently in my daily life. I just need to not say that, okay, God, I have control over my money, my finances, but I actually need to live in a way that's intentionally generous. You see, a lot of times I think for us, and I've talked about this dynamic at our household before, um, I love my kids to death. They are both the best and the worst at the same time. And there is no more frustrating thing on planet Earth than when you're in a rush and you're dealing with a four-year-old and a six-year-old and trying to get them to put their shoes on, right? I'm like, dude, like my parents used to be like, oh, I used to always say, where are my shoes? Like they were responsible. They're like, I don't remember where I put them last. I'm like, all right, sarcastic, yo. Now I understand why verse 13 speaks to me. But like, like, what, like where are my shoes? And, and now I talk to my kids. I'm like, where are your shoes? They're like, I don't know. And I'm like, bro, you think I know? Like, 
And so I'm like, you know, all right, put on your shoes, put on your shoes, put on your shoes. And, and, and our version of this would be that if I was like, you know, put on your shoes, Ava, you know, six, Rhodes, four, put on your shoes. And they were going to say, oh, my gosh, Dad, we're so sorry. I haven't been putting my shoes on lately, and I apologize for it. And they just like go watching their cartoons again. I'm like, dude, put on your shoes, man. Like, I appreciate the acknowledgement, but would you just please actually go put them on? I don't know where your socks are either. Good luck. Ask your mom, right? But like, would you just go ahead and do this? And I feel like what happens to us a lot of times in this moment is that we, we understand what happens conceptually as it relates to the idea that we should be filled with the Spirit. And so we confess the fact that we need to relinquish control, but we don't actually move in a direction that, that relinquishes control. So he says, so repent, repent, repent. And be baptized. This is the action. This is the response. That when I realize I have gained control and taken control, I need to intentionally move, not just to to confess the fact that I control that, but to relinquish that. And it is scary. I get it. I feel it. It is terrifying. I get it. And I feel it. But it's worth it. You want to know how I know? In fact, if you've given your life to Jesus, you want to know how I know you know? Is because perhaps the most irrational, illogical thing that we can do is trust Jesus with our salvation and not with our life. Think about that. Like, think about the most valuable asset you have. If you're in college, it's like my PlayStation. Okay. Like for, maybe, for, for most of us, it's probably like your house, right? And you're, you're, you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, God, I trust you with eternity, like the rest of ever. Like this number line does not stop. It just the arrow keeps pointing. It keeps going and going and going and going. And God, I trust you salvifically with this massive eternity, but this little blip called life on planet earth, I don't know. It's like, God, I trust you with my house. Bro, I don't know if you can borrow this pencil. So what if you break it? (laughs) He's like, what if I break your house? But he's God, so he doesn't, obviously. But, but that's the approximate or that's the relative comparison when we say, God, I trust you with salvation, but not with lordship. In fact, I would say, if we don't actually trust him as Lord, then why in the world we trust him as Savior? It's just logically incoherent. But emotionally, it's difficult. And that's the part that pushes back. And so I'm praying that God gives us the wisdom to know what it looks like to relinquish control and the courage to do it. What it looks like to respond in repentance and the courage to do it. Because if God would send his son to die for us, for our salvation, then we could trust him with the rest. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we relinquish the control and the lordship of our life, that you would fill us with your spirit. And as your spirit fills us, there would be this sense of amazement and confusion about our lives. That we would live in such a way 
move in such a way, love in such a way, have joy in such a way, peace in such a way, patience in such a way, kindness in such a way, goodness, faithfulness, self-control in such a way that the, that the Spirit, your Spirit, would move in and through us, control us into the world around us. It would be amazing and frankly a little bit confusing. And I pray for every one of us who has trusted you, who has placed our salvific hope and faith in you, you would give us the wisdom to know the areas of life or the area of life where we just want to regain control. Where perhaps to this point, the reason we want you beside us, the reason we think it's better for you, Jesus, to be with us in the Holy Spirit in us is because if you were with us, we would ask you questions that would determine a higher level of comfort for us. But you have called the Holy Spirit the comforter and the counselor. I pray that we would live lives so empowered by your Spirit, so on mission for the kingdom of God that we would actually need comforting and counseling because your spirit moves so deeply and dwells so richly inside of us as we relinquish control of our lives. And it would be amazing and confusing to the rest of the world, but it would be undeniable that it is you, God. So would you give us the wisdom to know the areas, to be honest with ourselves about the areas where we want to keep control? And would you give us the courage to not simply confess, but to repent and turn in the other direction. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.